Good morning. First case this morning is United States v. Bagani. Judge Sparks has recused himself from participation in this case, and therefore we welcome again our esteemed senior colleague, Senior Judge Susan Crawford, who will be sitting on this case. For Judge Crawford's schedule, we will conference this case this afternoon alone and then resume conferencing in the normal way tomorrow. Is the appellant prepared to argue? We are, Your Honor. Government? Yes, Your Honor. Mr. Vladeck, you may argue. Chief Judge Stuckey, may it please the Court, Stephen Vladeck, along with my co-counsel, Lieutenant Daniel Rosinsky, Lieutenant Clifton Morgan, on behalf of the appellant, Cross Appellee, Mr. Stephen Bagani. Your Honors, may it please the Court, I'd like to focus on three central points this morning, and indeed to do so in what, at least from our perspective, is the most logical order for addressing the issues in this case. First, under Toth and its progeny, it is the government's burden to show the necessity of departing from the constitutional norm of civilian trials for anyone besides active duty personnel. It's not enough, as the government argues, that Congress has formally deemed retirees like Mr. Bagani to be part of the land and naval forces. Rather, under both the Supreme Court's and this Court's precedents, retirees must have a significant ongoing connection with the military, one that justifies subjecting them to the UCMJ in perpetuity. Second, the government has not met that burden. Not only does it now dismiss as irrelevant the two connections on which it has previously relied, but neither of them, retirees' continuing receipt of pay and their amenability to recall, are sufficient. After all, these same arguments apply with even more force to reservists, a class of personnel Congress has not seen fit to subject to the UCMJ while inactive. But third, even if this Court disagrees, the government offers no good reason for the UCMJ's differential treatment of active duty and reservist retirees, two groups that at least while they are retired are similarly situated for purposes of equal protection analysis, nor does the government dispute that Congress's basis for that distinction disappeared in 1952. Thus, whether because it exceeds Congress's power under Article I or violates equal protection, Article IIA6 is unconstitutional as applied to Mr. Pagani and his conviction should be dismissed. And so, Your Honors, I'd like to start with the Article I issue, the supplemental granted issue, because I think the central point of disagreement between us and the government is whether we apply a formalistic or a functionalistic approach, whether it is enough that Congress has simply said retirees are part of the land and naval forces. And we think it is clear from this Court's predecessor's decisions that the analysis is more functional. We cite the Court of Military Appeals' decision in Cole, and we cite its decision in Murphy v. Garrett three years after Solorio. Are you suggesting that an explicit constitutional grant of power to Congress can disappear through desuetude? I think that's a very, very startling assumption, if that's what you're saying. It isn't, Your Honor, and allow me to clarify. It is not, Your Honor. Let me clarify. The point, as the Supreme Court made clear in Toth, in Covert, in Guadalajara, is that the question is whether the individuals at issue are actually part of the land and naval forces, individuals who, to quote the Court in Singleton, can be regarded 
as falling within the land of naval forces. It was never sufficient, Your Honors, that Congress had said yes. Otherwise, Murphy v. Barrett should have been an easy case. Otherwise, the constitutional questions that the Court of Military Appeals said it was not deciding in Murphy v. Barrett could not possibly have arisen. And we think this follows not just from Murphy and Cole, but from how the Supreme Court itself treated all of these cases involving non-active duty personnel. It's not destitute to answer Your Honors' question. It is a question of whether, as a matter of function, these individuals have an ongoing connection to the military. On that point, what exactly is the test? You say that receiving pay and being subject to recall, at least theoretically being subject to recall, is not enough. What exactly is the test? If we had to say you're in the naval forces if X, Y, and Z, and you're not in the naval forces if A, B, and C, what specifically is the test? So, Judge Nash, we are not aided in this regard by the Supreme Court's lack of guidance, but at least the Court of Military Appeals in Murphy believed that the relevant question was whether the accused or the class of individuals at issue have, to quote the Court, continuing active contacts with an armed force. That can be interpreted broadly, Judge Nash. We are not arguing that it has to be a sort of micro-parse distinction. The relevant point for present purposes is that the government's only arguments throughout all of this litigation that there are continuing active contacts between retirees and an armed force are pay and recall. And they have not, Your Honor, identified others. So we don't know exactly where the line ought to be. As Judge Sullivan explained, for this Court's predecessor in Cole, the Supreme Court has not exactly been clear on this point. What the Supreme Court has been clear on, though, is it is a line to be drawn by the courts and not just by Congress. Counsel, in the civilian sphere, we have no federal police power, yet we have all of Title 18, mostly through Congress's authority to regulate commerce, right? If the Supreme Court has been willing to take such an expansive view of Congress's other enumerated authorities to create a police power, why would we not treat the Make Rules Clause with the same expansive view, given it's an express grant that has been interpreted, long interpreted, to be a grant of power to create a criminal code? It's a great question, Judge Harding. I think the answer is because the Supreme Court has specifically said so. That is to say, in Toth, Justice Black's opinion talks about how court-martial jurisdiction should be construed in the narrowest possible way to achieve, I believe the quote from Anderson v. Dunn is the least possible power to achieve the ends pursued. And in this regard, I think it's important to distinguish between Congress's general power to regulate the land and naval forces, which we are not disputing, and the specific power to subject personnel to a non-Article III criminal trial. So the test is different. You might be, Congress might have the authority to regulate these individuals in terms of their pay and their duties and their obligations, but not enough authority to subject them to court-martial. I mean, I think that's a fair reading of the Supreme Court's precedence, Your Honor. Indeed, I think Toth, Covert, Guagliardo, Singleton, Grisham all come out differently in a world in which the court is affording the same kind of deference to the jurisdictional determination. Well, but none of them has this situation. Toth is somebody who's discharged. Covert is a dependent and a capital case to boot. Guagliardo is a civilian. So I'm not at all sure that these point where you want it to go. 
The fact, of course, is that the reserve components, the fleet reserve and fleet marine reserve, as you admit in your brief, are not reserve components. The name reserve is purely gratuitous. The people in them are retired, regular enlisted people. They're treated exactly like any other retired, regular enlisted people for the purposes of pay, recall, et cetera. Retired actual reservists in the Naval Reserve or the Air Force Reserve or what have you are treated differently, but they're a different bunch of people with different qualifications, much less active duty experience, and so forth. So, Your Honor, I want to get to the distinction between active duty and reservist retirees, and if you'll indulge me, I'd like to do so in a minute. I want to finish the response to Judge Hardy, because I think it's critical to point out something that the government does not dispute. When we look at the personnel on whom the government would rely as supplemental manpower in the case of an emergency, retirees are well down the list under current regulations. That is to say, retirees are behind the selected reserve, the individual ready reserve, the National Guard, and in a true emergency, perhaps even the selective service. And unlike all four of those categories, retirees remain subject to the constant jurisdiction of the UCMJ. That's a distinction the government has never justified. But if I may pivot to the equal protection argument, because, of course, we prevail even if this Court just rules for us on equal protection. To Chief Judge Stuckey's question, we actually think that the relevant question is not whether reservist retirees and active duty retirees had different careers. Of course they did. As the Supreme Court has instructed, it's whether they are similarly situated in the relevant respect. And that's with regard to while they are retired. And so we might be able to come up with any number of ways in which Congress could rationally distinguish between active duty and reservist retirees. We're here because Congress hasn't done so. The recall authorities are not meaningfully different. The pay authorities are not meaningfully different. Whoa. The pay authorities are vastly different. I might have gotten a little carried away there, Chief Judge. Yeah, I think you did. What I meant to say was the pay authorities are not sufficient to justify the disparity. After all, active duty retirees. That's something else. And I apologize for the misstatement. Active duty retirees, after all, are not paid the same. Pay as an active duty retiree is a function of your terminal rank and your time retired adjusted for cost of living. The point is that for purposes of recall, the reason why we have a retired list, to have a reserve of manpower in the case of an emergency or a war, these individuals are similarly situated. The Department of Defense instruction treats them as all part of the same buckets when it comes to categorizing different levels of retirees. Category 1 under the DOD instruction draws no distinction between active duty and reservist retirees. Mr. Vladek, you've focused a lot on the pay here. Why isn't it sufficient that there is this difference in pay in terms of fleet reservists are taking the king's shilling? Why isn't it proper to view that as being part of a contingent obligation that they have in time of national emergency? So I think that's the argument, Judge Olson, that really doesn't survive Barker. That, of course, is the argument that Overton had relied upon, that Hooper had relied upon, and I think that is why it's incumbent upon this court to revisit the issue because that edifice has crumbled. What Barker makes clear is that pay in both contexts, pay for active duty retirees and, Chief Judge Stokely, pay for reserve retirees, 
is not understood as salary. It is not tied to any current obligations. It is not tied to any current responsibilities. It is entirely a function, Judge Olson, of something that happened in the past. That is to say, what was your rank at the time of retirement, and how long have you been retired? That's why Justice White in Barker says this is not tantamount to current pay. This is much more analogous to a pension. It's why in this case, the trial judge held that Mr. Pagani's pay could not be forfeited because Article 58B does not apply to retainer pay because it's not a salary. And so I think the critical point, Judge Olson, is that Barker is what upsets the precedential foundations of retiree jurisdiction by clarifying that even if pay could be sufficient in the abstract, it's not enough when the pay is a pension as opposed to a salary. I think that's carrying Barker an awfully long way for a decision having absolutely nothing to do with Congress's power to mold the armed forces and simply a pay dispute, a domestic dispute that doesn't even mention these matters. I think there are two reasons why Barker is not an outlier. And I think what you're throwing around could charitably be described as a dictum. I don't think it's actually a dictum at all, Chief Judge Sticke, because it was necessary to the holding that the Kansas tax statute was treating military pay differently, that it was discriminating against federal pay in violation of the doctrine of intergovernmental tax immunity. How do you disregard the following sentence, the following phrase, right? When the court seems to be explicitly saying, we're not saying he's not a member of the armed and naval forces. And you want to dismiss that as dictum, but you also want to dismiss Tyler and the precedent cases as dictum. So which is it? Is dictum winning this case for you or is it losing this case for you? I think dictum is not deciding this case either way. I think dictum is why we're here, as the NMCCA said in Dinger, Judge Hardy, as a matter of first principles. The fact that so much of this is dictum is exactly why this is a ripe question for this court. And just to finish my response to Chief Judge Sticke, there are two different reasons why I think Barker is not an outlier. I have to understand this as part of a larger puzzle. First, as we note in our brief, Congress by statute has incorporated Barker in the Uniformed Service Members Former Spouses Act. I may have that name wrong, but in the benefit statute for the former spouses of service members, Congress has reflected that distinction. But far more significantly, Your Honors, the modern blended retirement system is predicated on the notion that retirement pay, retired pay, retainer pay, all of this are annuities, are not salary. And so it may be that we cannot say that Barker conclusively resolves this question, but Barker certainly points a pretty heavy finger in the direction of pay to retirees, active duty or reservists, being a pension, and to having to confront the consequences of that for where I started, for the notion that the government has to have some justification for continuing to subject retirees to these. If we disagree with you on the supplemental question, doesn't that put you in rational basis zone? And if so, can you still win this case? So if you disagree with us on the supplemental question, of course, yes, then we're in equal protection land. We do think there is an argument for strict scrutiny, but we think this Court doesn't need to reach it because on the rational basis test, as Your Honors know, there are two different prongs that the government has to meet. It has to show, first, a legitimate interest, and second, that the classification is rationally related to the interest. Even if we assume, as we do, that the government has a legitimate interest in having a body of retired personnel who are available for an emergency, the question is whether the distinction between active duty retirees and reservist retirees 
is rationally related to that interest, Your Honor. And that's where the fact that for all of the scenario, the Supreme Court says we never know when these national emergencies might arise. We've got Congress who is saying when it comes to fleet reservists, there are a number of differences with them in terms of they need to go on medical disability if they're not prepared to serve. They can only serve for up to 10 years. All these indicia that the Congress is looking at the members of the fleet reserve as people who are prepared on a moment's notice to serve on active duty with the active forces. So in light of the fact that they've done that, in light of the fact in Solorio the Supreme Court says we never know when national emergencies might arise, why should we as a court step in here and say Congress got this wrong? So, Your Honor, I see that my time has expired. Yeah, answer the question. Thank you very much. So, Judge Olson, if I might push back a bit against one of the premises of Your Honor's question. The government does want this court to believe that the fleet reserve is, to quote the government's brief, the primary body that will react to an emergency. That's just not true as a matter of law or practice. Now, wait a minute. I don't think they're arguing that they're the primary. They're saying in relationship to the retired reservists, there's a difference. I took the government's brief to be saying that actually the fleet reservists were actually one of the first lines of defense. I just want to point out that that doesn't hold up if we look at the actual statutory authorities. So with regard to recall, the government's brief argues that the reasons why it would need to recall retirees is for war or national emergency, an interest no one could dispute. But, Your Honor, Section 12301, which Your Honors will find at page 159 of the joint appendix, authorizes the recall of all reservist retirees during time of war or national emergency. That is to say, on the very circumstances the government has suggested justify having this pool of manpower subject to constant UCMJ jurisdiction when no one ahead of them is, the authorities are identical. In a true crisis, in a war or national emergency, all it would take is the scratch of the Secretary of the Navy's pen to recall active duty or reservist retirees. And, indeed, the DOD instruction would say at that point whether their active duty or reservist is irrelevant compared to where they fit in the age and time of retirement calculations and disability. And, Your Honors, that's the gravamen of our equal protection argument, which is that the government has a perfectly legitimate interest here, but the laws Congress has passed, the regulations the Department of Defense has promulgated, do not reflect that interest because they don't draw the very distinction that the government suggests is baked into it. Well, 12301 is the full mobilization statute. It's not the only statute. If you read that chapter, there's a bunch of other ones that are more tightly aimed, for instance, the selected reserve authority, the presidential authority. 301 is Congress. 302 is the president. You know, it goes down there. So this is the last-ditch statute. And, again, I'm aware that I'm over my time, but if Your Honor will indulge me. It is the last-ditch. That's exactly the point, Chief Judge Stuckey, which is the reason why we have a retired reserve is for the last-ditch emergency. The very emergency that the government says is why we have any retirees subject to the UCMJ. And so long as the statutory authorities do not meaningfully distinguish between those two classes of retirees, and so long as there is the selected reserve, the IRR, the National Guard, and even the selective service 
ahead of them in that food chain, Your Honor. The notion that this category of personnel and only this category is subject to the constant jurisdiction of the UCMJ when even reservists are not is exactly why there's a serious constitutional problem here. Thank you, Mr. Vladek. Thank you, Your Honor. Counsel for the government. Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning, Chief Judge Stuckey, members of the court, and may it please the court. I'm Major Clayton Wiggins, and along with Lieutenant Colonel Nick Gannon, I represent the United States. This court should affirm for three reasons. First, the Navy's fleet reserve is constitutionally part of the land and naval forces. Second, appellant waived his equal protection claim, and even on the merits, third, the equal protection claim fails primarily because fleet reservists and retired reservists are not similarly situated. I'd like to begin, Your Honors, with the jurisdictional issue first. And we know from Solario that if a person can be regarded as falling within the term land and naval forces, that is constitutionally sufficient to subject that person to court-martial jurisdiction. This case asks the next logical question. How do we know if a person can be constitutionally determined to be part of the land and naval forces? Well, Solario is a little more nuanced than that. What Solario did was junk service connection from O'Callaghan. And you can argue that the appellant is trying to sneak service connection back through the back door. But, of course, Solario was an active-duty person. And the question wasn't Solario's status as an active-duty person. The question was whether the offense was service-connected under O'Callaghan. And after 20 years of experience with O'Callaghan, of course, it had been so shot full of holes that nobody knew what it meant. And the Supreme Court just said, oh, the hell with it, and junked it. So where does that leave us with respect to folks who are not on continuous active duty? I mean, I realize there certainly is language in Solario that can be taken to say status is all that matters. But are they talking about status in respect to O'Callaghan service connection, or are they talking about something else? Yes, Your Honor, and a couple of responses there. One, we do agree that Solario dispelled with the service connection argument, and for that same reason, appellant's alternative argument in the service connection part of his brief should fail. But more importantly to your question, Your Honor, Solario does speak broadly to whether court-martial jurisdiction is constitutional, and it doesn't limit it anywhere in the opinion, Your Honor, to active-duty members. The court itself says to try a serviceman who was a member of the armed forces. And if they wanted to say active duty, that would have been a sweeping proposition that the court could have said, but no court has said that, Your Honor. The Supreme Court in Solario certainly said that status alone was enough to subject a person to constitution. But I say that this asks the next logical question because it does ask this court, how do we know if a person is constitutionally a member of the land and naval forces? And specifically here, how do we know if a fleet reservist is? And we know, Your Honors, starting with Article I, Section 8, Clauses 12 through 14 of the Constitution. And there, as the Perpich Court told us, the Supreme Court says, that gives Congress the exclusive and plenary authority to define and create the land and naval forces. We know also from cases such as Rosker and other cases from the Supreme Court that when Congress acts under that authority and judicial bodies are reviewing those statutes, that judicial deference is at its apogee. And that's the going-in position here, Your Honor, when we look at Title X and see what Congress did to create the fleet reserves as part of the land and naval forces. 
And we believe it's important that at no point in this litigation, from trial all the way up through the pleadings in this court, has appellant ever contested his statutory status as a member of the Fleet Reserve. The only question is, and what he argues, is that that's not enough to make him a constitutional member of the Land and Naval Forces. And he makes that argument, Your Honor, making the same fallacy, the same mistake that the judge in Larrabee made at the D.C. District Court. And that is, as Chief Judge Stuckey was alluding to, taking a body of law that the Supreme Court has reserved for civilians, Toth, Covert, Kinsella, Guagliardo, Hagan, all of these cases deal with people who are without a doubt civilians. There was no question that any of these people were members of the Land and Naval Forces. Nevertheless, the Larrabee ruling out in town, an appellant here today, asks this court to take those tests and superimpose them on someone who is statutorily and constitutionally a member of the Land and Naval Forces. Counsel, can I ask you the same question I asked the appellant? What exactly is the constitutional test for when somebody is in the Naval Forces? What are the requirements for being in the Naval Forces? It sounds like you say, well, we should give a lot of deference to what Congress says, but at a certain point there has to be a limit. So what is the test for when somebody is in the Naval Forces? Yes, Your Honor, we will agree with the appellant that a test, a specific test has not been articulated, but we believe there's a really good reason why, and it comes directly from Solario. So first, again, we know that it is a plenary and exclusive authority that Congress has, Your Honor, but we are not arguing today that it is without limits. What we are saying is that, as Solario explained in quoting Alexander Hamilton from the Federalist No. 23, and if I could read, the court said, it is impossible to foresee or define the extent and variety of national exigencies or the corresponding extent and variety of the means which may be necessary to satisfy them. So, Your Honor, the limits, they're out there perhaps, but we don't know what they are because Congress has given such broad authority. Why? In the interest of national security, national survival should such an event arise. And so we know that the military necessity, Your Honor, from Rosker, the court tells us that the purpose of a military is not only to fight now, but also to be ready to fight wars should the occasion arise. Counsel, I have a question. So originally in Article 142, Congress said that the judges of this court had to be from civilian life, and for many, many decades that meant that people who retired from active duty were ineligible. Just recently, Congress changed Article 142 to say that active duty retired were eligible to serve, suggesting that they are in civilian life, which to me seems to also suggest that they are then not part of the land and naval forces. So what should we draw from the amendment to Article 142? Your Honor, nothing in the context of this. There's no case that says that a person who has retired is a, quote, unquote, civilian, Your Honor. But Your Honor's question is appreciated to the extent especially that it points out that Title X is a vast statutory framework. It's not one sentence that creates the land and naval forces. And as the Vance Court pointed out in Vance v. Bradley, it involves complicated decisions that affect benefits and rights and obligations. So just because Congress might have made a change to the requirements to set on an Article I court, Your Honor, that doesn't mean that it's overruling all the precedent that says that building up to Solario, that status alone as a member of the land and naval forces is sufficient for constitutional court martial jurisdiction. And we believe that it's important to understand that that is, Your Honor, a binary decision. A person is not sort of a civilian or sort of a member of the land and naval forces. It is our proposition that under Solario it is a binary decision. 
we're not saying that there couldn't be difficult cases around the edges dealing with maybe some type of fraudulent enlistment or some kind of fraudulent discharge or questioned about like the Hart case here where discharge paperwork was maybe not in order. We're not anywhere near that, Your Honors. And when we talk about the limits of the land and naval forces, what we're talking about here is Congress creating the fleet reserve through a number of statutes, all the way from enlistment and reenlistment to 8330, which gives a person like appellant the option to do one of two things. They can either leave the land and naval forces like Toth chose to do and no longer have any connection with the land and naval forces. In that case, the appellant would have been a civilian, not subject likely to court martial jurisdiction, but he didn't take that choice, Your Honor. He chose to stay in the land and naval forces and simply transfer, as 8330 says, to a different part of the land and naval forces. As such, that status alone as a member of the land and naval forces makes him constitutionally subject to court martial jurisdiction. Your Honors, if I could turn to the... Are you suggesting that the discharge then is what determines, that's at least a key factor that if you're in the forces and you don't get out of the forces, then you're still a member of the forces? Is that the constitutional test? Unfortunately, Your Honor, it's not that clear. Oftentimes, as in Toth, when a person is wholly separated with no ties to the armed forces, it is sufficient. But we know from cases such as U.S. v. Conn from the Supreme Court that a person can be in the brig serving a sentence pursuant to a court martial, Your Honor, and even if that prisoner is discharged while serving that sentence, he or she is still subject to the code while in the military prison, Your Honor. So it's not as clean cut as that. But again, what we know here is that Appellant's DD-214 at Joint Appendix 340, it clearly says in black and white that he chose to remain a member of the land and naval forces by transferring to the Fleet Reserve. Because at least for officers, I'm not sure for enlisted people, if a retired reservist hits his max out date and he's done 20 good years, he may not be 60, so he may not be drawing the pay yet, he can resign his commission, cut any connection with the armed forces, and still get the money. And he still gets the money, that means he still gets the base privileges like the commissary and the exchange, because they're not based on, statutorily, they're not based on being a member of the armed forces. They're based on receiving the money. So where does that leave you in a situation like that? Yes, Your Honor, and I believe that goes to the equal protection question and assumes... Well, I assume he wouldn't be subject to the code, would he? Because he's not a member of the armed forces. That's right, Your Honor. Outside of... Well, I suppose he'd have to get some sort of ID card because he'd have to get on base. And he's drawing the money because he can do it. There's no statutory requirement to be a member of a reserve component to get the money. That was proposed when they run ROTMA through, but it didn't get adopted. So that being the case, where does that leave you? You've got guys running around drawing the pay and, you know, buying the groceries, and they're not members, and they're not dependents or anything like that. They're former members of the armed forces 
kind of like toss. But anyway. Yes, Your Honor. A couple of responses to that. First, obviously, this case isn't exploring that specific issue. No, I know that. But it is relevant to the overall discussion because Your Honor's question points out the complexity of the statutes that create the land and naval forces. It does involve things that include who can go to the commissary. But all this stuff, Your Honor, we subsided Clinton v. Goldsmith for the proposition that all of these administrative implementations of Congress's statutes are really outside the scope of what this Court is reviewing. But to your broader question, Your Honor, to the extent that Congress has determined in its wisdom that it wants to allow retired reservists to receive pay and not for fleet reservists if they remain in the land and naval forces, that is a decision that Congress has made in its wisdom. It could be in order to ensure that there's an adequate number of retired reservists. It could be for fiscal reasons. There's any number of reasons that Congress might have done that. But we know that when Congress under Article I, Section 8, decides how it wants to create and populate the land and naval forces, that that is a decision that is given utmost judicial deference. And if we could turn, Your Honors, to the equal protection claim, we first would like to point out we'll stand on our brief with regard to the waiver. We believe that appellant waived this non-jurisdictional issue. But even assuming, even assuming this Court finds that it wasn't waived, fleet reservists and retired reservists are not similarly situated. We subsided also the Jankowski case, but we also have Schlesinger and Rosker that show us that when courts are looking at an equal protection claim, they evaluate whether two parties are similarly situated before they even get to any type of rational basis or strict scrutiny review. And here we know that they're not similarly situated. When we look at fleet reservists, as Your Honor pointed out, fleet reservists have 20 years or up to 30 years of active duty service in the military. They're paid at a higher rate. They're paid earlier, as early as 38 or 37, depending on when they get in. And importantly, Your Honor, they are, like retired reservists, subject to recall if Congress declares a national emergency or war. But that's where the similarity stops, because fleet reservists are also recallable under 688 at any time. And under 8385, Your Honors, we know that they could be required to do up to two weeks of service every four years, regardless of what's happening, in peacetime even. And that's important, Your Honors, we believe, because this idea that Appellant repeated in his briefs about recall being an anachronistic idea, we think could be no further from the truth. It wouldn't matter if in the history of the United States, not a single fleet reservist had ever been recalled, because recall is a forward-looking proposition. The purpose, as Rosker told us, is to not only fight today, but to be ready to fight the next war tomorrow. And no one knows what that's going to look like. But it's Congress's constitutional duty, their obligation, to create, at the best of their ability, a land and naval force that is ready to respond to that. And Appellant asks this Court to do what the Supreme Court has cautioned against over and over, and that is to replace the wisdom and the careful choice of Congress with the wisdom and the choice of five judges at CAF, with all due respect. And that has never been a proposition that the Supreme Court has said is a good idea, for obvious reasons. So when we look at similarly situated, we believe this Court needs to look no further than that. In Jankowski, the Court pointed out there that once Congress has created classifications within a ramified statutory framework, as they have done in Title X, with all sorts of effects on people's lives and on the construction of the land and naval forces, the Courts don't need to get into that. Statutorily, these are two separate entities. The fleet reserves on one hand, retired reserves on the other. I'd like to briefly touch on a point that Appellant made 
about the DOD instruction and what it does with these two categories. First, of course, the Department of Defense is not at liberty to expand anything that Congress has statutorily given it. So it must stay within its lane, if you will. But more importantly, Your Honors, if we look to the DOD instruction, we can see that, in fact, the Department of Defense does put a premium on the experience of fleet reservists and other retirees. So first, it implements the statutes. Second, it not only puts a premium on skills but also military experience. We can see that in Sections 3.2B, and that's on Joint Appendix 259 to 261. It talks about experience and skills. And then if you look, Your Honors, at Joint Appendix 261, Section 3.3B, titled Involuntary Order to Active Duty, it says that retired reservists can be recalled at time of war or national emergency. And then for fleet reservists, it says, quote, in the interests of national defense. That incorporates those broader categories under 688 and 8385 that we discussed earlier. It's important as well when we're looking at the rational basis for this, the court doesn't have to be satisfied with anything Congress has said. And we know from Heller v. Doe that any reasonable state of facts that could provide a rational basis for this classification is sufficient under a rational basis review for this court to resolve it. We've offered one in our brief. We can offer two today. One is that Congress, in the interest of military readiness, has decided to expose the persons with the most military experience, the highest pay, and the most recallability to the most jurisdiction. In other words, fleet reservists are constantly subject to jurisdiction, retired reservists only while hospitalized. There's also another one, Your Honors, that could be, as I mentioned earlier, that this is a recruiting decision. Maybe this somehow, in Congress's wisdom, they've decided that this helps populate the retired reserves or this helps somehow incentivize people to go to the fleet reserves. But again, Your Honors, from Heller v. Doe, we know that this court doesn't have to be satisfied with either of those as long as this court can come up with a rational basis for itself. And we would also point the court to Taussig v. McNamara. It's a D.C. District Court case from 1963 where this very issue was addressed. Now, it was in the context of Article 2A.4, which deals with regular retirees, but the claim otherwise was the exact same, and it is that rather constant jurisdiction over that person was a violation of his equal protection claim as compared to a retired reservist. The Taussig court applied a rational basis and said that it was plainly for the court, for Congress rather, plainly for Congress to decide who to subject to jurisdiction and when. And with the remaining time, Your Honors, I'd like to go back where I began, and that is that what we're talking about today, Solario is dispositive, but as Chief Judge Stuckey, Your Honor, as you pointed out, it doesn't answer the exact question here. It's dispositive because if this court determines that Congress in its wisdom has constitutionally created the fleet reserve and that when appellant enlisted and reenlisted voluntarily and then decided after 24 years of active duty service that he would rather join the fleet reserves as opposed to become a TOF-like civilian, Congress has told us that that status alone, or rather the Supreme Court has told us, that status alone is sufficient to constitutionally subject appellant to court-martial jurisdiction. Counsel, on that point, is it the government's position that appellant, even if he wasn't a member of the land and naval forces, that he could voluntarily subject himself to the jurisdiction of a court-martial? Not to subject matter jurisdiction. So if there were not 
jurisdiction over the offense, Your Honor, the right of the court to even hail the person. But that's an interesting question I have. We talk about this as subject matter jurisdiction, but it seems a lot more like personal jurisdiction to me because there's no question if he was an active duty service member that his event, Congress could have created criminal liability for his acts. So it seems like Congress has the authority here in a subject matter perspective, but the question really seems to me to be one of personal jurisdiction. Does the military have personal, the military courts have personal jurisdiction over him? If it is, if I'm right, that it's a personal jurisdiction question, could he waive lack of personal jurisdiction and consent to be subjected to court martial? Yes, Your Honor, he could. We believe that this court just last year, and I see that I'm over my time, Chief Judge Suki, if I may continue. Go ahead, answer the question. Just over a year ago in Hennis, this court pointed out the difference in jurisdiction over the person and jurisdiction over the offense. Appellant's status as a fleet reservist, Your Honor, resolves both. Because as a fleet reservist, Congress or the Constitution says that we have court martial jurisdiction over him. That's Solario. And as a member of the land and naval forces, we also know that there was jurisdiction over the offense. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, Your Honor. The appellant at rebuttal. Thank you, Chief Judge Suki. May it please the court. Let me just start by saying I understand the court's reluctance and its skepticism about upending what has been the law for such a long time. But I also think it's important to put in context what you just heard from counsel for the government, which is no limiting principle on Congress's power to subject anyone Congress deems to be part of the land and naval forces to military jurisdiction. And to whatever extent that might be a satisfying normative position, I apologize, I realize my mask is still on. To whatever extent that might be a satisfying normative position, it does not square with the Supreme Court's longstanding skepticism of extending court martial jurisdiction beyond active duty personnel. The government did not say a single word about the Court of Military Appeals' decision in Murphy after Solario. Longstanding skepticism or a brief period in the 50s and 60s when things were different. I mean, you've got to compare Solario and what was said generally in Solario with O'Callaghan and Toth and what was said generally in there about, you know, this crude system of justice and so forth. And Judge Ryan was clearly right in her dissent in Loving to take issue with the Supreme Court continuing to quote the rough form of justice language. But, Your Honor, our point is exactly that Solario is not the end of the line. This Court's decision in Murphy v. Garrett, this Court's decision in other cases throughout the 1990s involving reservists should have been open and shut on the government's reading of Solario. And instead, Judge Cox in Murphy v. Garrett, Judge Sullivan in Cole were at pains to actually look at the functional relationship between reservists, reservists who are so much closer to active duty, to full-time service than retirees. The government has never explained why those cases are no, never mind, even though Murphy comes three years after Solario. And so I think it's worth stressing that because Congress says so has never been a sufficient basis for extending court-martial jurisdiction over non-active duty personnel. This Court, in the Ali case, even in upholding the extension of Article II to a civilian military contractor in Iraq, was at pains to read, Chief Justice, those very cases from the 50s and 60s as standing for the principle that we should be skeptical of efforts to extend military jurisdiction 
beyond active duty personnel. That is why, Your Honors, the UCMJ does not subject inactive reservists to court martial when they are inactive. It is why members of the National Guard are not subject to court martial when they are inactive. It is why members of the Selective Service are not subject to court martial when they are inactive. At the bottom of the totem pole are retirees. But even if Your Honors are not convinced by the supplemental issue presented in this case, we think there is more than enough to decide this case in our favor on the equal protection issue. My colleague from the government, Major Wiggins, referred to this court deferring to the wisdom and careful choice of Congress. Well, let's talk about that careful choice. Congress made the choice to distinguish between active duty and reservist retirees in 1950 for the sole and undisputed purpose of recognizing the unique structure of the Army's bureaucracy at that time. The legislative history is clear that Congress understood it was creating an arbitrary distinction within the Navy. That may have been enough in 1950, but as we note in our brief, that disappears in 1952 when the Army takes full control over active duty and reservist retirees. Congress hasn't touched the issue since, Your Honors. And so if we're deferring to a careful choice made by Congress, let's understand that the choice Congress made is based on a state of facts that has not existed for 70 years. Counsel, can I ask you to respond? Chief Justice, I see it's almost out of time. Go ahead. Could you respond to two points that the government made? One point was that Appellant in this case chose to be transferred to the Fleet Reserve when he could have just left the service. And the second point is that it's irrelevant whether anybody has been actually involuntarily recalled. The question is could they be in the future because it's looking forward. And those were two distinctions he drew against your brief. Could you respond to those two? Sure. If I may, with the Court's indulgence. Go ahead. So first, of course, Your Honor, we don't think there's any authority for the proposition that a party can consent its way into a non-Article III criminal adjudication. And I think perhaps the best discussion of that is then-Circuit Judge Kavanaugh's footnote one in the Albaluan Bonk opinion where whatever Mr. Bogani may have known he was doing, he cannot create subject matter jurisdiction. And this actually dovetails with Judge Hardy's question. If I might, Judge Hardy, we think it is clear that the Article II of the UCMJ is a subject matter jurisdiction conferring provision, even though it is defined by party status. That may seem counterintuitive to us, but, of course, Article III of the Constitution, six of the nine heads of federal jurisdiction outlined therein are party status-based heads. We've always understood those to be subject matter jurisdiction. It's for the simple reason, Your Honors, that we understand that the court-martial cannot act without that statutory grant of authority. So I think those two questions dovetail. Judge Matz, to the second point about involuntary recall, we don't think our argument would be different if the government at any point had actually managed to produce any evidence that there ever are involuntary recalls of retirees. We think it undermines their response for why it is so important to keep this body of personnel subject to the UCMJ. It would be one thing, Judge Matz, if there were frequent recalls that might satisfy the continuing active contacts language from Murphy v. Garrett. It is the absence of any evidence of such recalls that is why the government's whole position before this court has not been about Mr. Bogani's contacts, but about the extent to which Congress didn't even need to account for them. And so if I may, in every respect that matters, Your Honor, military jurisdiction over retired service members is an anachronism. They can be recalled without being tried. They can be recalled without being subject to the UCMJ. And if Toth and its progeny stand for anything, 
It is the proposition that when it comes to subjecting non-active duty personnel to non-Article III criminal courts in the military, the Constitution requires more than just inertia. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you. Court thanks counsel for both sides. Case is now submitted, and the court is in recess until 1045.